You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Dr. Dante Newman. Dante is a faculty member in the Department of Communication at Santa Barbara City College and is also a co-founder of diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting firm, ally to accomplice Now, if you're an avid listener of the show, you know we have a pretty standard format. We walk through a guest's personal and professional journey and touch on current events where relevant. But considering where we are as a country, this conversation went in a different direction at the start. So we've split this interview into two parts. In part two, we'll delve into Dante's personal story. But in part one, we discussed how a variety of factors affect the Black community's access to opportunities in both academia and career, and why advocacy can take many forms. And of course, we also discussed our thoughts on the election and our expectations for the next presidential term. So without further ado, please take a listen and enjoy. Dante, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you so much for finally having me on. All right. I yes. am just, yes, you know, I was waiting for you to hit record. Okay. You all have been doing this show for years and this is your first time contacting me. I am hurt, but I'm happy to be here. And I'm going to give the same response that I gave before we hit record. And that's, listen, I'm the host. Okay. You got to take right. that up with the producer. All right. I am disappointed in my brother, Demarcus for finally extending an invitation when I have begged him on numerous occasions to invite me. All right. But I'm here. I'm glad to be here. And I'm, and I'm looking forward to a great show. You know, he kind of <laughs> treats it like, you know, the comedy seller, the laugh factory. You got to keep showing up and getting in line. And then finally right. he decides to put you on the list, you know. Right. And, I, and you know what's, what's interesting is I had to pay him to come on. Right. So I, I was waiting in line for years. Then he said, well, OK, now if you give me fifty dollars this time around, you, you could finally come on. So I'm fine. I'm glad that my money is still working. I'm just and, kidding. <laughs> and he is listening in. I'm surprised he hasn't taken himself off mute yet and uh, jumped in the conversation, but he'll probably defend himself offline. I'm sure he will. Now, nah, that's my guy. That's my guy. I'm just happy to be here, y'all. It's going to be good. So let's jump into it. Who is Dr. Dante Newman? That is a great question. It's it's entirely difficult to answer, but I will say that I am I'm a Christian, I'm black, I'm a husband, you know, I'm a son, I am a professor, I am an advocate for for black people in many ways, and I'm a reader, and I am an avid Netflix watcher. I think let's start there. Let's you wanna start, start there? Yeah, I definitely want to start there. So you you telling me where we're starting. Okay, I see how you oh, do. Oh, no. No, I mean, like, let's start with however you want to do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so used to being on the other end. Yeah, yeah, we should tell the people that you are used to hosting as well, which I know yeah. from experience that being a guest is a whole different experience. I know, it's a whole different experience, but please take the wheel. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Um, but but that that is many things. But I, I, I notice often when people, when you talk to people about who they are and they speak to their identity uh, as a Black person. Right. Early in that conversation, generally advocacy 
right? Or some connection on a very passionate level to the advancement of our people also comes up as well. And not to say that if you don't identify readily and say, I'm first and foremost, I'm black, it does, it, that doesn't mean necessarily that you are not committed to those things. But often, if I ask this question or if I'm talking to people and that comes up very early, generally that advocacy piece happens as well. Um, I want to unpack that. And I usually don't start, uh, go straight to the race thing, but that's what jumped out at, at me at, you know, immediately. So, and I know some of your research and your work is, is related to race as well, but talk to me about your journey towards recognizing yourself as an advocate as well for your people. Right. I mean, I think that's a really great question. And it's so strange to like, sort of classify myself as an advocate because I know that I'm not like on the ground with community organizers trying to encourage folks to to vote or trying to uh, you know bring about some type of sub- substantive social and political change in our communities. But I do feel like I advocate in my sort of sphere of influence at my job, right? Like you know, I, I always talk to to my wife and some of my friends about well, before you can make a local change, you need to make change where you work. And before you can make state change, you need to make change at the local level. And before you even get to that national level, you should be trying to change things at the state level. And so for me, I think as, you know, I'm finally finished with school and I think before I get to the local, state and national politics, I think it's only right that I start uh, at my job. And one thing that I'm doing right now, I work at uh, Santa Barbara City College in Santa Barbara, California. And one thing that I'm uh, doing now, my fight is to sort of get our administration to rethink our hiring policies and practices. For example, most positions on our campus uh, have a required minimum qualification of one year, uh, master's degree, right? Well, many people will say, well, you definitely need a master's degree in order to do this position. Do you really though? You don't necessarily need a master's degree to do a number. You don't need a master's degree to be a professor. You just don't. I mean, I think you could be a, you could have a bachelor's degree, sort of 12 years of experience teaching in order to teach public speaking or to teach argumentation and debate or to teach political science or sociology. You don't necessarily need a master's degree. Now, the reason why that has a, a sort of a negative impact or an adverse impact on Black people is, well, we know getting a master's degree costs a load of money, right? And so if it costs a load of money and Black people are already, you know, suffering from income inequality and wealth inequality, how can we afford to get a master's degree at the systemic level, right? And we know, too, that getting a master's degree require you, uh, requires taking the GREs, right? Well, if I take the GRE and you know I'm coming from an economically disadvantaged background, so I don't have access to tutors, I don't have access to uh, professors or teachers who have invested their time and resources in me to help me prepare for the GRE, that means I'm going to take the GRE, which costs, a, again, a lot of money. I take the GRE. I don't perform well, so I don't get into a master's program. And I don't get into the master's program, so I still have a bachelor's degree. I apply for a position at a, at the, at the, at a university or a community college level. I don't qualify because I don't have a master's degree. So it's like, that. that's my fight, right? And then also this arbitrary sort of qualification of you need five years of experience. Wait, hold up. Wait a minute. Why is it five years of experience? Why can't, why isn't, why isn't it four? Like, what is the rationale behind making it five years? Because Black people, we have years of experience with dealing with racial inequity. We know firsthand what it's like. That's our experience, but that's not, that's not, it's disqualifying, right? And so again, that's the long answer of sort of the work that I've been involved in. And also just getting people to rethink white supremacists. I, I can go on, Delisha. Dang Keep it, going. DeMarcus was right. DeMarcus was right. All right. I, nothing's nothing more. I, listen. I'm always on the other end asking the questions. I want to talk too. But, Listen, uh, 
you have listen you are a doctor okay you have a phd Ah, I knew I knew you were going to have all the words and you teach. Teachers always have a lot to say. That is true. But it's been it's been tricky because we've been online and now Mm -hmm. they say that we cannot uh, require students to tune into Zoom sessions, which means that I'm not heard like I used to be. I used to get off my ideas, you know, in person because students were required to come to class. But now, you know, I could send a Zoom link or a Google Meet link to to about 120 students and perhaps get about 20 students to show up. That's not the way they're not required to attend. They're not required to attend. And the reason why is because so many students uh, are now working and taking care of family members. True. And so required them to attend. And nothing I find, too, is that you could if you make it a requirement then what happens if a student doesn't have a properly functioning laptop, what if they don't have, you know, access to strong Wi-Fi connection. And so it has to be optional now. So because that's it's an equity issue. And so but it's still interesting, though. And I I think like to wrap up that the piece about um, about hiring is that we have got to figure out a way to get black people hired, but not only just hired, but hired at high level leadership positions. Mm-hmm. Because he is, hey, we'll bring in a black person, a black person in a low level leadership in a low level position, and then say we're making progress. But I'm always reminded of what Dr. Kendi says that racial progress is always met with racist progress. And so for me, when people are saying, hey, we should focus on the progress that we have made, but I think that we should always focus on the racist progress that has been made as well. And so, and, and for me, that racist progress is when you do. Hire. I mean, when you do elect a black president, and then when he is finished, you elect the most racist president, perhaps in the past twenty to thirty years, right? If you can quantify racism, right? I mean, you just racist. You just, you just, you just racist. I'm not sure if you can say this person is a well. The president does say he's the least racist person, which he admits he's racist. But anyway, that's another conversation. Right. <laughs> right. But you know, it. You bring this up, and and in the last few months, we've been having a lot of conversations on this show about structural inequality uh, and racism and the barriers to advancement in various professions. And you know, I have this conversation a lot in my world as an attorney, uh, somebody who works in tech in a space that we're on painfully underrepresented. Um, right. And I am always banging the drum about diversity and inclusion. And one of the narratives that I've been trying to help change is oh, the talent's just not there, right? Oh, you know, we we are, we are and this came up in the news recently with, with old yeah. boy from, what was Wells- it, Wells Fargo? Right. Um, so a lot of times what, what you'll hear is we want to be, we want to be more diverse. We want to advance our DNI efforts. But if you look at all of our peers and you look at us, we all are, we all have the same numbers because we just can't find people that meet our qualifications. Um, And as I dig deeper into this issue, as it relates to tech, right? I'm a tech lawyer, but I deal with people across tech. What I'm learning as I educate myself as well, particularly uh, when you go to to HBCUs, HBCUs push out some of the largest number of black engineers, black computer science majors, et cetera. But when you look at the number of black students and Latinx students who graduate with these degrees versus those who actually work in the field that they went to school for, the drop off is insane. Like you're talking less than 10 percent, like single digits actually work in their fields. So what is happening here that we tell black and brown students go to school, get an education, focus. We'll just take STEM, for example, focus on STEM and then they come out and they can't get a job. Like, what is that about? Right. And that's because people don't realize it's not just the education. 
It's the right. soft skills and the other things that you have to have to really navigate these worlds. And we need to do right. more to make sure that our people are prepared to go right. into these interviews and can compete compared to, right. to broaden their Rolodex and their network. Because I'm going to tell you something, when you get yeah. to my level, jobs right. are not filled on Indeed. OK, well, jobs no. are filled because somebody picks up the phone Which. and says this position is open. Are you interested? Right. Ask me well, how I know. Right. So because I get the phone calls. Right. right. And but I have been groomed. I've been groomed for that. And that's right. some, that's a privilege that I acknowledge when you look at right. to the schools I've gone to, the programs I've been in. Let's take your 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 profession and in, in your field, your area right. of focus. I was taking public speaking in junior high. Right. Come on. Right. So all of that stuff gives me an advantage. But what about the people who look like me? but have not had the same journey, but have just as much smarts or more smarts than I do. But they haven't been given those tools in their toolbox to really flourish and build that network and those connections. So they're getting the calls. And basically it's like, you just got to show up and breathe and talk because you know the job is yours already. And these are all the nuanced things that nobody is talking about when they say, oh, they just don't meet our qualifications. Well, you know what? All the nepotism that goes on and the back scratch and all that other stuff, that's not about qualifications either. It's about relationship. If we want to really keep it all the way 100. No, let's keep, let's keep it 100. Listen, I couldn't agree with everything that you said more. I think that is really important too to sort of like, well, let's, or well, the first thing you said was uh, talking about this Wells Fargo CEO. I think his name is Charlie Scharf or something like that. I think I've just deleted his name from my memory for right. obvious reasons. But. Right, right. But the guy, I think he made a statement, right? I think it was in a memo where he stated something like, we are having a difficult time finding Black people. He said there's something like a, uh, there's a limited pool of black talent to choose from, black talent to recruit from. I mean, first, like, I, I don't want to be considered black talent, right? right. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, just say black people, right? Or even, I even would agree with if you just said black Americans, right? If some black people would, would say that they're Americans. But, but, but my thing is, black people are one, talented, and two, we are uh, well qualified. And I do think that you make a really great point it's just that I think that before we can even get to people being, you know, well-versed in public speaking, people being well-versed in how to develop relationships, I think that we could have all of those things and still not get the job because we have a black sounding name, mm-hmm. right? We have a mutual friend, right? Unless, and he's a friend of the show. But when you see DeQuayland on an application, you automatically assume that that person is black. Right. And in that research, that study that came out of University of Chicago years ago, that black applicants are less likely to get a call back if they have a black sounding name. Right. So even if we have all of the skills, the public speaking skills, we we have developed this persona that is likable. Right. We have all of the knowledge we have. We have the experience. Even if we have all of that, we're not even going to get a call back because we have a black sounding name. And then let's say we get a call back. Right. Which is not likely in some cases. But then we come in with the ethnic, ethnic hairstyle, right? Now, we, you don't fit white supremacist culture. You don't fit. We don't think you will be a good fit here. But no one ever explains what it means to actually fit in, right? It just really means that you're not white or you're not accommodating to, you're not accommodating yourself to white culture. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I feel like I'm always interested in tackling policies and not necessarily people. But I do enjoy the, the fact that we can do both. Right. And, and I think that's what a lot of people fail to realize is like, we've got to say, look, voter suppression is real, but get your ass up to go vote. Right? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, 
Don't just complain about voter suppression without trying to encourage people like, yeah, I know voter suppression is real. You got to get up and vote. You've got, hey, I know COVID-19 is real. You got to stand in them lines. Right. So I agree with you 100 percent. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point about ethnic sounding names, I remember probably like two years into my legal career and I was doing fine, you know, flourishing. But one right. of the things that I said, I, I noticed at the time that a lot of lawyers were using a first initial middle name and that just wasn't right. exclusive to black folks. Um, right. But I had a moment where I thought like, man, uh, maybe I should have done that. Maybe I right. should have just gone by my middle name and my, which is pretty nondescript in terms right. of race and my last name, you know, definitely right. nondescript. So, right. you know, I, I, in hindsight, I'm glad that I didn't. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed as I talk to folks that I know who work in executive recruitment and, and all this other stuff right. with these staff firms at some companies, ironically, a lot of consulting companies are moving towards blind uh, resume reviews. So oh. anything out that identifies you by name or gender, they're basically Xing that out of the resume, but resume before they even, the person who reviews it before it even gets to them. And right. that is great. But to your point about when you walk in there, right, right. Now, now they see you, okay, you got through the first round, uh, but right. there are many layers and a lot of complexity around implicit bias oh, come that, on. that goes beyond what you look like, right? Stuff. There's a, socio, a socioeconomic element to that as well, right? We just, and, and I think it's because like I spent my life from the time I was 12 years old from seventh grade until right now around people who come from a different economic background than I do, right. that right. I realized that when you talk about things that you have in common, it, there's so many things against us. If you didn't grow up, grow up in those environments, that country club lifestyle, you know, vacationing yeah. in certain places or what have you. And all of that can play into connection with an interviewer. Or even if you get the job, connection with the people that you work with in a way that you can really advance, right? Because all that stuff is important. And we need to have more honest conversations about how advancement is not all on merit. Oh, yeah. Like, let's, let's, we could have that conversation as well. It, it's, there's so much more to it. Yeah, absolutely. I, and you're making so many great points. I think that you're the professor here, not me. Uh, <laughs> that's, my, that's my post-retirement life. I might teach. Well, I mean, well, you, I mean, you you are an attorney, right? And so I'm, I'm learning in this. I'm learning in this interview. So I feel like I should be asking you questions at this point, so you can educate the audience. But I think that you talked about something that's really important, and it's so interesting that we have to do blind resume reviews, right? Mm-hmm. Like that literally says that employers are going to be racist <laughs> and they're right. going to be sexist. Right. They're going to be. So we know if there, if there are any identifiers. Right. That they're, they, they just can't hold their racism back. They can't hold the sexism back. So let's make it blind. Let's do a colorblind sort of review process. Let's do a gender blind review process. And honestly, I think that is worse. Mm-hmm. Because what ends up happening, the same thing you stated. When you look at the roommate, you already you see their race is regardless. Right. You're going to the person went to Brown. Well, we know the black population at Brown, the person with Columbia. Well, we know the black population at Columbia. The person went to this law school. Well, we know the black population at that law school. Right. And so even when you look at, hey, this person grew up in this, this person worked in this city. Well, we know that that city is 90 percent white. And so I think that there are just so many ways in which people can look at a resume and be like, yeah, that person is going to fit in here. Mm-hmm. Even, without saying, even without saying that the person's name is Chet or Dylan or Tyler. Mm-hmm. Right? or whatever white woman sounding name that we can come up with. Right. So I think, I think that that's, a, I think that that's a point too. And then also I think to the other point of just being able to connect with 
your interviewers. I think that is so important. I mean, generally, when we are being interviewed, I think Black people, and this is, doesn't apply to all Black people, but I'm, I'm, I'm certain that most Black people uh, may share this experience, is that when was, when was the last time you walked into an interview where the, everyone that was interviewing you was Black? Right. And so right there, we're already at a disadvantage because, you know, we come from different cultural backgrounds. And so whereas I enjoy listening to Jay-Z, you know, listening to Lupe Fiasco, you know, listening to other hip hop artists and Cardi B, I know that some of those folks, they may not enjoy that. And so that, but that could have been used, right? That cultural, that could have been a cultural moment where I connected, right? But now I'm in this thing, they're talking to me about, hey, do you, you know, they, they, they having a conversation about Sting, right? Now, I don't know. Listen, fam, Freddie Mercury. I don't know those people, man. Listen, Did you say you know, Freddie Mercury? Well, anything. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I just heard Freddie Mercury in a, in a, in a, in a, in a show. I don't even know who Freddie Mercury is. Now, right? I, you know, now I did watch the movie. I didn't know who Freddie Mercury is before the movie came out, but I also watched the right. movie as well. Right. But, but I'm saying it's just like maybe, but maybe a lot of Black people do not know about right. who Mercury was or whatever. I'm not, I'm not sure. But I'm just saying like, you know, it's just some of those things that where we, it's hard to develop a connection because that person is not well-versed in your culture. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's not, you know? And so I think that, 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 that that's a disadvantage for a lot of us. Right. And so, yeah. So you're yeah. on point. I think about this, uh, there was an episode of Insecure where Molly's at this law firm and, and I don't know if you watch Insecure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it wasn't the last season, and maybe it was the season before that. Um, Molly's at this law firm, and there's this summer associate or this this black other black woman that they brought in, and she's like wow. just being who she is. Come on, come on. But was pretty loud, right? Uh, yeah. And maybe not didn't present in the way that you would ex- expect a, a black person to present in that environment. Oh. And Molly pulled her to the side and was like, "Uh, you need to tone, you know, tamp it down." The chick was like, "This is who I am, right? Take it or leave it." And, right. and and I, I wonder, as someone now who's been practicing law, it'll be 11 years, right? In January. Ooh, what would I have done in that situation? Because I am, I have been the person that they come to and say, sis, you need to pull this person to, to the side, explain to them how things work here. Um, and I've never had that experience where somebody right. was being, you know, quote, too loud or to them. Right. Uh, but I was asking myself, what would I do? what would I have done in that environment? Because I code switch every day. Who I am, you know, personally, some some of that gets suppressed, right? Uh, Monday through Friday. Let's just I'll just keep it all the way gully, right? Um, and I don't know what I would have done. I, I'm being completely honest. If if that yeah. was me, I don't I don't know. I don't know that. Put it this way, I don't know if I would have said something. Right. I don't know if I would have remained quiet. But I know right. what I would not have done. I would not have encouraged her to continue to do that. Right. Now, I don't know what that says about me, right? And how I've been sort of uh. <laughs> socialized in these environments, but that's just me being honest. And I had that conversation with myself. I would never, I would have never said that. That's like, you go, you continue to be this loud force here. Um, Because I've been in these environments for a very long time. Maybe there's some unlearning I have. I don't know. That's for everyone. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, I would, I would probably say perhaps you wouldn't encourage her to continue with that behavior is because you love and respect black women and you want to see black women employed. Because Mm -hmm. one thing that we didn't talk about was that woman got fired. Mm-hmm. Remember, she got yeah. fired for behaving the way that she was behaving. She got fired, right? And so, because you because you love black women, you respect you respect black women, and you want to see black women succeed. Sometimes, unfortunately, I don't care how radical you are. I don't care how committed to black people and committed to blackness you are. You have to code switch. Is listen. 
I'm not a fan of what they call it, uh, uh, respectability politics. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be a fan of it, but you're going to play it, though. You're going to do it. I mean, that, that's unfortunate. But the problem is that you've got to do respectability politics and get into a position where you don't have to play respectability politics anymore. Right. And I think that she was like, I'm not about to do respectability politics, but she wasn't in that position, though. And that's what and that's what happens. Right. So for my thing is I'm all for black people in white spaces being fully black, unapologetically, fearlessly, unabashedly. But also know that comes with a price. And sometimes when you need to feed your family, mm-hmm. sometimes you may just have to tone it down a little bit until you get into a position. Let me tell you this. I'm put it this way. I'm a I'm a uh, I'm a professor, right? We all know that professors work for about five. Some professors work for about. Five. I'm a tenure track professor, so I think I'll be tenured in let's say three years. I believe two years. Whenever I'll be tenured, two or three years. When I get tenured, it's a wrap. I'm gonna show with the Jays. Yo, I might, I might start saying stuff in meetings that I wouldn't say right now because I'm not tenured. I'm not, listen, I'm not tenured right now. Right. You know what I'm saying? I can't lose my job because then I'm so, I'm, I'm being so much, I don't know, I, I, I can't lose my job and then say, but at least I held it down for blackness though. Fam, you being unemployed ain't holding it down for blackness, bro. Sis, that ain't holding it down. It's not. Sometimes you got to play the game. I'm with you. And, you know, I I look at my own trajectory and say who I was in college and who I was at the start of my career at a Fortune 50, right, company, and then law school, and then after law school, and even my trajectory as a lawyer. And when I started my legal career, yeah, I was in the black suits. And like, hey, I was transitioning at the time, you know, so my hair was pulled back and I was losing a relaxer, you know, so I was easing them into it. And I I just eased them right onto the natural hair thing. But even then it was like, controlled natural hair. Uh, Then I went from that to I was working with startups. So what I realized very quickly with working with startups is I was like all about my people. I wanted to represent black clients. I wanted to advise them, but I was soon realized that I couldn't keep the lights on without Mm -hmm. diversification, right? And that is not to say that, oh, black people don't pay. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm Mm -hmm. saying is I'm talking, I was working with startups in technology, new media, and entertainment. And when I looked at the money and the statistics, statistics will support what I'm saying right now. Who had right. access to the capital didn't look like me. Come on. So the, the, the people who were able to pay my legal bills, right, right. had the rich dad or the, the VC friends who were throwing all this money at them to start these companies. Oh. While I, I saw some brilliant black clients who just didn't have the runway financially to right. continue, right? So when right. I got into solo practice, I was like, I'm, I'm going to be me. I'm going to do this my way. And it still required me to sort of bend my own philosophies and what I was passionate about to be able to keep the lights on. Um, cool. And now I'm at a place in my career, right? It's taken a decade, but I'm at a place in my career where I can roll up in faux locks and nobody's going to say anything, right? right. I, can, I can look C-suite dead in the face and say, let me tell you why you're wrong in your recruitment pra- practices and philosophies. But right. I have the track record now and the credentials and the experience to do that. Right. And it, it gives me, you know, the space to be able to say some things that I would not have said as a first year lawyer. No way. Right. Um, and, and I think we need to extend a bit more grace to our own people about yeah. how they navigate these spaces uh, that are really difficult to be in. And, sure. you know, you do have to tamper yourself in a way and a lot of them. And, and we got to eat. You know, I don't know a lot of people who if they got fired tomorrow will be OK for the next year. Of course, of course. Or let alone six months, whatever. 
Right. That's what I'm saying. I, but you do have some of those black people who are so committed to the movement that they're willing to, to take that chance. They're willing to mm-hmm. make that risk. And unfortunately, I'm not in that position. Right. To 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 walk into uh, uh, a meeting and then just go, you're racist, you're racist, you're racist. Right. You're a bigot. You're a bigot. You're a bigot. And I'm not saying that that's what black people want to do, but let's keep it real. Mm-hmm. We've experienced so much racism and sexism right, in our workplace, that sometimes we just want to say, yo, that was racist. But sometimes we don't have that professional clout to make those sort of accusations, even if Mm -hmm. those accusations are rooted in uh, credible evidence. And so you're absolutely right. I just think that, you know, it's it's a sort of nuanced conversation that we have to have with Black people. Yeah. Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. But one thing, too, is that we all wear masks. Right. Even white people. I'm not about to sit up here and call the white people, but white people perhaps wear the mask more than we do because they have to really for the for eight hours out of the day, 40 hours a week. They have to pretend not to be racist. Some of them have to pretend not to be racist. And I I know that that's truly difficult for them, for many of them. I'm not saying that it's more difficult for them. I'm not saying that it's they have a a, they have a, a larger burden than we do to carry right, or a heavier burden to carrier than we do, but I'm saying that they too have to wear a mask. They have to pretend that they're not racist, many of them, to the, you know, so they can put on this uh, anti-racist or non-racist sort of persona in front of their Black colleague, right? Especially the white liberals, right? The people who vote Democratic, right? The, the, the white, the, the white, especially the white liberal women, right, who are all excited about, you know, voting for the first Black woman uh, vice president, but will return to work tomorrow on Monday and then be racist to their Black woman that they work with. Mm. Right. But in the most liberal way. Right. They're still putting they're still wearing this mask. Right. And they're code switching, too. Yeah, I believe it, because when white people have a backstage conversation, meaning that it was, it's, it's primarily for white people, I'm pretty sure they say the most racist stuff. Oh, well, that guy, he did have a knife, though. So I don't I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm with the George Floyd thing, you know, even though he was a criminal. But the Walter Wallace guy, he had a knife. Right. But then they get to work the next day. Oh, Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Yo, that's code switching because we know what you're saying in your private Facebook messages. We know what you're saying at Thanksgiving. If You know, we know what you're saying. at Christmas. We know what you're saying. And so, yeah. So when I'll be at work, I'm like, yo, this ain't really you. Stop stuffing me. And do you experience that? Be honest. I have. I've, I've experienced that. I've experienced a couple of different things. I've experienced being out with colleagues um, and they start drinking. OK. And the truth comes out then. Ooh. I, I've experienced I'm an ally until I see you accelerating and climbing the ladder more quickly than I. Uh, I've, I've been through that. <laughs> Come I've on. been through a lot of different versions of this. And I and and I have had true allies as well. And I'm not gonna deny that. I've had um some great mouthpieces on my behalf who don't look like right. me, right? White men right. who stood up and said, Oh no, right? Um right. few and far between, but I've had them. Yeah. Uh but they they've had to do a lot of unlearning on their end as well to get oh. to that point. Of course. So so what about what about so we talk about like navigating that space? What about like I'm not sure if you want to go here, Delisha, but what about the black people that we work with who are mouthpieces for white supremacy or white male patriarchy, right? What have you ever had to work with some of those individuals mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, Delisha is sort of in this space where she is going up, 
I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Let me pull her down. Crabs in a bucket mentality. Have you ever had to deal? Oh, with- I've had that. Okay. I've had that from black men. I've had that from black women. Now I feel like I'm the guest. Um, but this is what happens when you bring another host on the show. It never fails. Every time we bring another host on, the, 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 the tables turn. Um, but I had a very real experience like that um, about four years ago. Uh, and it, I was a bit caught off guard by it because it was another mm-hmm. black woman. And yeah. I've had those experiences with black men and there's all this you know, conversation debate about who has it worse in these in these environments, these yeah. professional environments. But um no black men got it worse. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> so, <laughs> off the show. <laughs> no, no. And I have my views on that as well. But um it was, you know, as lawyers, we have to collaborate and you have people who have their specialties. And without going into too much detail, um, it was a situation where I'm I'm a person if another black lawyer, if I can help another black lawyer, I'm gonna do that. Right. And if there's something that I know that can be helpful to them and whatever matter they're working on or what have you, I'm going to do that. And um, it's also just the right thing to do in these corporate environments when you sit in this, especially if you sit in the same group. Um, And I had an experience where I was uh, in a new role and it was her, her specialty. It was the person that, you know, everybody's like, Oh, go talk to her. She's the one who kind of runs this. And she paid me dust. Oh, and was literally like, I'm not helping you on this. Like, this has nothing to do with me, even though it was literally her area of expertise. Um, and she had a she was known for being really aggressive and people were like always walking on eggshells around her. Um, and I remember having that experience and I was completely taken aback by it. But at the same time, you ain't gonna check me like that. That's just who I am. Right. So if that if that's the role that you want to play with me, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to respond to you in kind in that I'm not going to talk back to you that way. But then I just know you're not an ally. So what ended mm-hmm. up happening is for months, I just didn't acknowledge her. Mm-hmm. We passed each other. like, And I just literally yeah. just didn't acknowledge her because you are clearly, you're not in my corner. So what what is there really here for us to talk about? And eventually right. we got over that hump. We did. Okay. But it, it really took me just kind of putting on my blinders and saying, all right, I see what's going on here. Um, I'm a person that believes I'm going to thrive either way, no matter what you throw at me or don't. Um, mm. So that was kind of my philosophy about it. Like, okay, you don't want to be in this together. We can be in it separately. Right. Um, don't expect me to like ever acknowledge your presence again. Um, right. And eventually the ice melted and she broached a conversation with me and it was cool, right? People like that though, is something my grandmother would always say, my late grandmother that I, I take with me to this day. And that is, some people you got to feed with a long handle spoon. And once you show me that that's who you are, I can be cordial. I can let bygones be bygones. But I I know that we're not going to be in the trenches together ever. Right. Because you've now shown me your approach and you're someone who doesn't leave their space for both of us to rise. So once I see that. Right. Yeah. We can get to hello. And how you doing? We could even kiki. But I'm always going to I'm always going to have that long spoon. Right. With you. Um, so that that's my approach. I don't I'm not contentious with those kinds of people. I don't feel the need to be adversarial. I don't feel the need to try to drag them down in return. Right. I just right. know that that's not a relationship that I, I should continue to invest in. No, absolutely. Because I think that when you work in predominantly white spaces and there is, say, another black woman or another black male, there is this sort of um, implicit agreement that y'all are going to be cool mm-hmm. right? because we're the only ones. Right. And so it's a it's a it's a tacit agreement. But what happens when that other person is, uh, you know, white supremacy and blackface? Mm-hmm. Right. And you're trying to advocate 
for the betterment of black people. And that person is doing everything to uphold white supremacy, uphold patriarchy. And you're like, wait a minute. See, now you and I, we're black, but I don't know if I can truly be your friend. Mm-hmm. Because we could disagree. I think James Baldwin said that, look, we could disagree. I'm going to butcher it. Like We could disagree. But if our disagreement is rooted in my oppression or the denial of my humanity, then then I can't I can't be an you can't be an ally because right. your disagreement is rooted in, in the denial of my existence. And so and it's so interesting how sometimes we don't talk about this enough because, again, we can talk about this. But 18 percent of, of, of black men voted for Donald Trump. We have to really interrogate why why that's the case. But it's not only black men. Eight percent of black women voted for Donald Trump. Right. And so from 2016, it's, it's doubled. Right. So I think it was like in 2016, four percent of black women voted for Donald Trump. 2020, eight percent. 2016, it was like 13 percent of black men voted for Donald Trump. And now we've got like about 18 percent. Right. 2016, about 14 percent of the LGBT community voted for Donald Trump. Now it's 28 percent. Yo, something something strange is happening there, right? At least when you look at the the when you, when you think about how Black people are voting for their own demise, political, moral, uh, and spiritual and economic demise. How can we still be po- friends and polite with those individuals, right? Because we end up having to work with those individuals, right? And so I think that that's I don't know how to deal with that. And so just listening to how you're dealing with it. I think that that will help me in the journey because I'm definitely dealing. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I've seen is not outright uh, adversarial behavior, but that I've been in in meetings, diversity meetings or focus groups with black employees where they ask all these questions and people are sharing their, their experience. And one person and it's I've only had this experience with black men um, yeah. will say, really, that hasn't been my experience. Of course. Um, and they, they act so shocked. Right. And that's fine. That that could be your truth, that that hasn't been your experience. But it goes back to what you're saying. You're denying somebody else's experience. You're denying their humanity yeah. because you have not experienced that. Right. And, you know, and I, I can speak for myself in that because of what my resume looks like and because of how I present, I've never yeah. had a bad interview. Come on. Speak I've, on I've, it. I've never had a bad interview. They're, the only jobs that I have not gotten from an interview is because I didn't want them. Okay, so but that when somebody else comes to me and talks about their struggle around as a black person getting past the first interview, I never say to them that. Well, that's not my experience. Oh, come on, come on. I I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, that's good. That's good. I'm I'm smart enough to know that a in a lot of ways I am the one that they look that that is tokenized. Like, oh no, she's safe, right? She's she's a safe Negro, right? Um, I probably shouldn't have said that, but anyway. Here we are. You're you're bringing the real out of me. Um, but, you know, I and I know that. And yeah. I think we got to stop this game of like, if you didn't experience it yourself, it's not happening to your brothers uh-huh. and sisters, because that's a whole other issue that we, we need to be addressing. And there are a lot of us who really advance professionally and personally. And now all of a sudden, just like we just it's like can't relate. And right. it's fine yeah. to acknowledge what's not your experience, but you can do so without dismissing somebody else's. Absolutely. And, you know, when you when you talk about that, I'm, I'm reminded of what Terry Crews did to Gabrielle Union. Right. I forget the show that they host. I think it's on AB. I could be completely wrong. All I know is that Terry Crews did this to Gabrielle. Was it Union. America's Got Talent? America's Got Talent. Right. Where he went on, you know, these talk shows talking about, mm-hmm. well, that has been my experience. I've never experienced any racism there. Fam, 
do you understand that black men in most spaces are not going to be treated the same as black women? You don't have to invalidate her experience to say, hey, I didn't experience that. And then just completely ignore the fact that that was that's what that was her experience in the workplace. You're treated totally differently. Right. right? And so that's something that Terry Crews did. So you're talking about how black men you've experienced this with black men. Definitely. Definitely. You're going to experience that with black men because we can even see this trend. Like I said, there's a trend right now. Most people don't want to talk about it. And I, I again, I still want to make the, mention the fact that black men vote more, we vote Democratic more than any other group of men, right? So we are still the second group more likely to vote Democratic um, behind Black women, right? So this idea that Black men are the new swing voters is completely false, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that our vote is like up for grabs now, it's just completely false, right? It's, just, it's, 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 it's not rooted in evidence, right? This idea that, that, that Black men are turning our backs behind um, turning our backs to the Democratic Party is just just completely false. Every other, every social group, pretty much almost every social group voted in larger numbers for Donald Trump this time around. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that there was a connection between that, like voting conservative and then also sort of being um, in this space where you think that it is okay to invalidate someone else's experience from your same group. Um, Right. You know, um, that's that, but I don't want to bring the real out. Yeah. And I mean, and people who say that, like, I'm also like, just keep living. Right. Because for for every story I have about a positive interview, like in a job offer that I've gotten, I've got another one about being stepped over. Right. Right. For an opportunity or an experience that I've had as I've climbed the ladder and the the higher I climb, the more visceral like things get. Um, So and I've seen some ugly things. I've experienced them. So like yeah. when people say, oh, that has been my experience. I'm like, well, just keep, keep, keep working. Because right. if you think you're going to move through your professional career and never bump up against the head of racism, like I don't know where you're living. But to me, that's just not reality. You're always going to experience conflict in the workplace, especially when you are a black woman. And this is not me uh, sort of uh, appealing to black women or sort of sort of uh, trying to coddle black women in a way that I'm not doing for black men, but I do think that it's different for black women than it is for black men. Because generally when black women are navigating, I think Jay-Z, Jay-Z said something like, domino, domino, I only spot a few blacks, the higher I go. Yo, but imagine if a black woman said that is really real. Because mm-hmm. there are fewer black women, the higher you go in most, in most professions. And so black women are not only dealing with racism, but they're dealing with sexism as well. And so, and, and because black men, we don't, we don't have to experience that sexism part. Right. Because it's more it's more than likely going to be uh, a white man or and let's just keep it real, Delisha. Asian folks, too. Mm. Latinx folks, sometimes let's keep it real. Let's keep it real. We saw get out. We saw get out. Remember when people were like, hey, why was that? Why was there an Asian man? Right. At the auction. Symbolism is important. And so and so I think I think that. That, that was a telling scene because we know who has economic power in America. We know who makes more money, right? Or uh, who, we know who makes more money than white people in America. Mm-hmm. So they have that power too. I'm not saying that black people are powerless, right? But we have less power. And I, and I, guess, I guess I would define power as dominance over the other, right? In most cases, black women and black men, right? We don't have power over white people, right? When, we, when, when white people go into an interview, they ain't being interviewed by a board of black people. <laughs> it ain't happening. 
Right. You know, one thing I always ask my students, Delisha, is, is this your first time ever being in a, in, in a uh, is, this, is this your first time ever uh, being taught by a black professor? Raise your hand. All right, but now we're online. I say drop yes in the chat. Is this your first time being taught by a black professor? Yeah, it's my first time. It's my first time, Dr. Newman. White people have never had to be graded. They've never had to be interviewed, right? They've never had to deal with black people, right? In positions of power, right? In some cases, they've never had to do it. When a, they just never had to do it. When black people go to court, more than likely, that judge is going to be white. Mm-hmm. Judge will be white. But when a white person goes to court, it's less likely that the judge will be black, right? And so I think, I just think that like, if the, you know, I was thinking about this, like, I, you know, I had my evaluation meeting for tenure last year and I was in a room like full of just just white people. Right. And and people don't understand that it doesn't matter how nice you are as a white person. It doesn't matter how kind you are. It doesn't matter even if you if you have a history of anti, you know, backing anti-racist policies and going to Black Lives Matter protests, which I could care less about, which I couldn't care less about. The fact of the matter is that you're still the white person in that room, right? And I cannot ignore history. The point I'm trying to make is that many white people will never know what it's like to be on the other side. Being interviewed, your job is determined. Your livelihood is being determined by a group of black people. They'll never know what that's like. You know, imagine a a white person, you know, being, you know, on trial for a crime. Mm -hmm. They don't know what it's like to have the jury full of black people determine whether or not they're going to be free. I don't know. I, I just I just think about that sometimes if the roles were reversed, you know, and not necessarily that we have to be the numerical majority, but just that we just have to be in positions of power, p- having power over the other. And I don't even I, I just I think that we should actually even get rid of power. Right. Like there is no such thing as positive power, I think, like because power is just inherently being able to dominate other people. But like if you are in a position of if you are in a position of power, don't use it negatively like don't don't use it to subtract from my life. Use it to add to my life. And, let, and I know that I'm on a, on a on a high horse here. I'm just thinking about like um like policing, police officers. Like police officers really have negative power, Delisha. Like there is literally nothing a police could do to add to my life at this point. Like if if in your life as well, like if we were to walk outside and encounter a police officer, that police officer only has three things on him or her. That he could give to us. Uh, police officer has a gun. Police officer has uh, handcuffs and a pen or a ticket. Now he could either arrest us, he could either uh, shoot us, or give us a ticket. That's that's subtracting from my life. Mm-hmm. All of those things are subtracting from my life. How are you going to add to my life? You don't have any food vouchers. I could be I could be starved. I could be dealing with food insecurity. You don't have any housing vouchers. I could be dealing with housing insecurity. You don't have any clothes for me. I could be dealing with clothing insecurity. You're not adding to my life at all, but you have power over my life. That's negative power. And more than likely the police, I think it was like, I think I saw a number, you can fact check this later. I think like 70% of our officers are like white, right? And we and we know the research, right? White people don't interact with cops and, we, and they still love them. I don't, I don't understand it. How can you love something you don't know? You, you know, yeah. And you bring you bring this up, which is interesting to me, because one of the things that I've been very good about, I think, in my career, um, and I don't use good, meaning that it yeah. is good. I'm just saying I've been committed to is there's certain things I never talked about. Right. In my professional life, there was a certain part of my humanity that mm-hmm. I never put on display. Um, 
And it was always about trying to be empowered and poised and put together and knowledgeable and all of that. But I didn't really speak about my experience uh, as a Black woman, even in like environments where I was supposed to be, right? Focus groups or what have you. I'd say stuff, but it was fine-tuned, trust and believe. But in the light of uh, this past year and the things that have happened, and as people come to me more in professional settings saying, what do we do? We want to focus on DNI. How do we support? What statement do we put out? And being, you know, intimately involved in that stuff. I've spoken more about my own personal story. And one of the things that I have talked about publicly, I put it online. I've talked about it in professional meetings is, you know, you see me and I know you don't see me as a threat as a black woman. You see me as an affable African-American who laughs at your jokes and you know, reads the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and is well-informed and is polished and all of that. So do you know how many times I've had the cops called on me? Oh, how many times? When I say say that and they're like, you? I'm like, yes. The first time I had the cops called on me, I was not even out of my team. Right. Oh, I can't believe that, Delisha. You know, and they're they're shocked, right? And I think before this year, I never brought that stuff up because I'm like, what does it have to do with my job? Uh, and let me just keep that. Those are things I talk about with, you know, my friends and my family and the people and my, my black colleagues. And I've been more open about that. Uh, and it's because I want them to understand that I am black first. I don't walk around with a pen degree on my forehead. I don't walk around with, you know, ESQ hanging off my ear. None of that. I'm black first. That's what they see first. And out of the, you know, yes, I've I've had the cops called on me more than once, but we don't talk about all the pretextual stops in my own neighborhood being stopped by cops. Cause what are you doing? And I was living in DC, living in DuPont circle. How are you here? You know, stopped there, stopped in Alexandria and all these places blocked from entering my own building when I was a law student, you know? So these are things I've started to be more open about. Um, Is it to my own detriment? I don't know, but I I need them to understand that you got to stop differentiating black people that you think are acceptable from the other. And we need to stop doing that too. (laughs) Some of us do that as well. Oh, oh, absolutely. You know, I, I, listen, I was listening to uh, uh, Dave Chappelle. So he makes a really great point. He did the SNL last night. Right. And he said, yo, this is what I want you to do. White. He says that I want you to go up to a black person who you think is undeserving of what you have to offer. Right. I want you to go up to that black person, the black person who's on the corner, perhaps selling drugs. Right. He's making a point. here. He says, so you would automatically classify that black person as undeserving. And I want you to buy that black person on the corner selling drugs an ice cream bar. The reason why that's funny is because we know white people always classify victims of police brutality, victims of systemic racism as deserving and undeserving. Here's the thing. Everyone is deserving. Everyone is worthy of investment. We want white people to look at Christopher, uh, Christopher Wallace. Oh my goodness. You know, I'm a hip hop fan. We want white people to look at, uh, Walter Wallace. I believe that was his name, right? Um, the same way they looked at many of them looked at George Floyd, right? George Floyd was not, many of them said that George Floyd was not deserving, right? Of injustice. And they were reposting Candace Owens, who was, you know, pushing that narrative. Yeah. Don't, don't get on Candace Owens again. So Delisha, when we talk about white supremacy and blackface, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. Now, does Candace Owens have a point when she talks about uh, uh, the, what has the Democratic Party done for us in the past 50 years? They've done a lot. 
But could they do more? Absolutely. But then my question to her is, what has the Republican Party done? Like, I would I would support your point, Candace, if you were like, look, what she calls a Democratic plantation, right? Leave the Democratic plantation and create your own party that's going to advocate and advance uh, a platform rooted in Black uh, economics and stuff like that. I would support that, right? Because you're trying to build your own party that's, that's, all about, that's all about making sure that Black people get what we need. Well, you want us to leave what you call the Democratic plantation to go to another plant, like no, I stop, right? Like I, that, that, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. We do need to do something about the Democratic Party, and here's why, Delisha. Black people are now saying, "Hey, defund the police, defund the police to eventually abolish the police." Again, we've already talked about this. Policing is negative power. There's nothing good to come from policing. And guess what, Joe Biden is going to do, Delisha? He's going to give more money to policing. He giving more, like he, he's literally giving policing more money. And black people are saying, abolish the police. So wait a minute. How is it that 90% of black people voted for Joe Biden, who's giving more money to the police, and we're saying abolish the police? And that's the point that the, the point that Candace misses is that because we will never vote for Republican Party because they they won't, they're not even trying to give any money to policing to actually stop black people from being killed. At least the Democratic Party is trying, even in ways that don't necessarily, that, is, that isn't necessarily consistent with what we believe um, should be the solution. And so, so I'm, yeah, I, I'm not even sure what I'm talking about, but I, the, the election is on my mind a little right. bit. The election is on my mind. So, so, so that's why everything I'm trying to, I'm going back to, that, to, to this election, you know? Right. So, and yeah. I mean, I'll say like, like the rest of the world, I felt like I took a deep breath for the first time in a long time yesterday. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for the benefit of our audience, we're recording this a day after uh, it was, you know, the election was called for, for Joe Biden. Am yeah. I jumping up and down and shedding tears of joy like I was in 2008? No. Um, that was a different experience when Barack Obama got elected the first time. Uh, and, and, and not that I agree, I agreed with all of Barack's policies and I have my thoughts about his, his eight years in office as well. Let me, I was not a blind, uh, sycophant as it relates to to him also did a lot of great things, but I have, I have my criticisms constructive, but I I don't, I don't have this experience. And what I don't want to do is conflate the fact that like, we've just had such a horrid four years with this promotion of xenophobia, racism, all this stuff. Um, and just our relief and our joy that he's on his way out. I refuse to name him on this show. He's Ooh. on his way out. I don't want to conflate my joy right. about that with whatever this agenda is now with this Biden-Harris ticket, because I think there's a lot of analysis okay. that needs to be done there and investigation and unpacking. I'm I'm kind of waiting like to see where this goes. And I think a lot of people are talking about it and in, in that they have conflated the two. Like, are we excited about them and what their their agenda is and what they're bringing to the table? Are we just excited because 45 is on his way out? It's okay to be excited that he's on his way out, but let's remember to hold who we've now have coming into office, hold them accountable no, for whatever platform they ran on. What are you going to do to push push this Black agenda forward, right? Um, yeah. So that's where I am. I have a, a measured enthusiasm. It doesn't yeah. take away from how I feel about a Black woman now being the vice president-elect who also is of Jamaican descent. I'm also, yeah. you know, half Jamaican. So it does none of that, it doesn't take away 
I thought she was. I thought she was a um, Southeast Asian. I thought she was. Indian. Her mom's. Her mom's uh, of Indian. Her mom was of Indian descent, but her dad was Jamaican. Yeah. And that, and that was my way of uh, trying to make a joke because I, I see I see what these journalists are doing. <laughs> you know, I'm with you, Delisha. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm gonna make that point. When when Kamala was running for president, she was black woman. Mm-hmm. But then when she was announced as uh, the running mate of Joe Biden, she was all of a sudden. Black woman, Southeast Asian, woman of color. <laughs> I see what y'all doing. Y'all not slick. But but seven months ago, she was just a black woman running for office. <laughs> All of a sudden, she's exotic. She from she got she she you you know what I'm saying. And then so you know what I did, Delisha. So I said, you know what? Let me let me buy her book and let me mm-hmm. read her book from page one to the last page. Nowhere in her book. The book that came out last year, Delisha, nowhere in her book, I'm telling you, I read it word for word. Does she say I'm Southeast Asian? Wow. She only says I'm a black woman with an Indian heritage. When you see Kamala on the street, you're not going to look at Kamala and go, ha, that's a Southeast Asian woman. Ha, that's a black and Southeast Asian woman. Stop playing games with black women. Stop making it seem like they gotta be and right in order to in order for them to 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 sort of advance in their political careers. Because no one was defining her as Southeast Asian seven months ago. Now all of a sudden mm-hmm. she anyway. So I'm with you. I, I read a tweet, Delisha, and it was about how it and, and, and it, you know, very very succinctly talked about how we can be sort of excited that Donald. Well, I'm not gonna mention his name on this. <laughs> you can. I just no, pay I'm him not, dust, I'm but you can. can. We can be excited that 45 is being evicted, and we can also be um, sort of in this space of uneasy uneasiness because we don't know what Joe Biden is going to do, and we can also be excited for Kamala Harris as the first black woman, right, um, as vice president. And so, for me, I think Joe Biden said it. Last night, he said the African-American community stood up for me again. Um, and I, he said something like, I'm going to be there for you or whatever, whatever it is that he said. We got to hold him accountable, like you said. We got to hold him accountable. Um, you know, over 70 million people voted for Donald Trump. Over 70 million people. And, and again, and just because of those, the people who voted for Donald Trump, I mean, I keep saying Donald, 45. My, hey, my bad listeners, it's me. I'm messing up. Oh no, we don't censor our guests. You can say whatever you want. We do censor out the curse words, but you can call you can call them if you, oh, you can call them by name. I did the curse words early. They're just gonna mute it. It's fine. It's all good. It's all good. All right. Well, listen. You know, all I'm saying is, I'm. I just hope we don't get to this place now, Delisha, as you know, where we we start coming out with these think pieces. We're living in a post-racial society. Mm-hmm. Right, we're living in a society where racist no longer matter, no longer matters because we, uh, we've unelected, right, Donald Trump, the most racist president of all time. Now we've got Joe Biden. This is this is this is evidence that America isn't racist. I hope we don't get to that. I hope we don't. I hope, I don't yeah. Those pieces. You know what I'm thinking a lot about. What What do you think about? Let me know. Four years from now, oh. in that, what does the election look like the next cycle right and 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 i hope um this this cabinet that's now being formed and this democratic party are really thinking about that right because when you look at the margins margins are razor thin we've all established that and if you don't 
if you don't believe these races are going to come back Ooh. hard as all get out this next time around, like, come on. Like, you know, I just don't, like you said, I don't, I don't want this whole, we're in post-racial society as to start resting on our laurels. There's right. a, I'm looking at the agenda for the black community who, who carried this election on their backs along with Native Americans and we can go down the list. Uh, but also, please continue to strategize for the next the next time around, because we saw what happens after eight years of a black man in the office. Right. <laughs> we see how things shifted after Barack left. So um, President Obama, let me say that with all due respect. Um, so what what happens now after you've got these folks who are frankly butthurt? about their candidate losing, uh, are we prepared for another dogfight in the next election? Because it's coming. Yeah, I do think it's coming. But I, you know what's going to be interesting, Delisha, is that one, I think that, well, Joe Biden in 2024, I think he, I believe he's 78 now. Yeah. The life expectancy, I believe, for white men is about 78. Uh, I'm not wishing death on anyone, but I do think there's a conversation. I think they even brought this up in the first or second debate, in the, in the, in the vice presidential debate. They brought this up, age, because it's, it's really important. He's the oldest person ever elected into the office of presidency. Um, I'm not sure if he's going to be able to run in 2024 as a second term president. I'm not sure. In fact, I don't think that he will complete this entire first term, mm. right? For whatever reason, I do think that Kamala Harris, right, or I mean, Vice President Kamala Harris, will step in um, as president perhaps the second year, if they're smart. Allow her to step in around second year and let her do really, really well for those next two years and then start campaigning right then. Because we know um, that incumbent presidents tend to do uh, well. Well, in this case, it didn't quite work out for 45. Uh, But I think that's going to happen. 2024, I also think Kanye West is going to run again. I think Ice Cube might make a fool of himself again. I think 50 Cent might make a fool of himself again. I think Lil Pimp, I mean, Lil Pump uh, might be... I don't know one from the other. I don't know one Lil from the other, but all right. (laughs) Yeah, you understand what I'm saying? I think that Kodak Black will make a fool of himself again. I think a lot of these, I think Lil Wayne will make a fool of himself again. But again, I I don't even think Lil Wayne knows what's really going on. I think some of these people are just endorsing folks taking bags, right? Like, Lil Wayne has never... Anyway, I'm not even going to go there, but I do think that 2024 will be interesting. But one thing I do want to say, though, Delisha, because I don't think 45 will actually run again in 2024. I believe he's around that age where he may not be um, up for running in 2024. Well, this is what scares me, Delisha, is we may get a, a presidential candidate, a Republican presidential candidate who looks and sounds like, uh, who looks like Mitt Romney. But he sounds like Mitt Romney. But what he's advocating for is on par with what Donald Trump was advocating for. And that's what scares me, because then again, a lot of people will get behind that. Like, wait a minute, you're still offering me a way to vote um, Republican with a clear conscience, because I know what you're saying. I know what you're advocating for is racist or it it will produce racial inequity. But I'm OK with that because you're not you're not explicitly stating, um, you know, ban all Muslim countries. Right. You're not explicitly saying that you're going to grab women by the hoo-ha. Right. You're not explicitly stating these things. And so I think that that's I think that that's going to be scary. And I think that the, the Democratic Party has to stop talking about let's make sure we get the working class. I don't know what that means because every most people work like literally what when we talk about the working class, literally you're talking about getting white people like. Nah, fam, black people work too. Delisha, right. you got a job, right? Mm-hmm. You're never considered the working class. That doesn't make sense. 
So when my, the Democratic Party going to go into 2024 tomorrow, we got to get the working class. Yo, fam. Yo, black folks work. Yo, Latinx folks work. Yo, Native Americans work. You know, Asian folks work. Like, stop that, you know. Um, yeah, but that that's what I'm thinking about 2024. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.